And the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. And then he said to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Revelation 21, the last chapter of the Bible, verses 1 through 5. But that is there and then, <laughs> not here and now. See, it's the promise, but it's not here yet. What we have now is what we were left with when Adam and Eve sinned and God cursed the earth. Immediately after the curse of God upon Adam and Eve, they were expelled from Eden and barred from eating of the tree of life, lest they live forever in a sinful and unrepentant state. Yet even as it took many years, the curse of death was halted or uh, inhibited in some ways until it reached its full potential. And that is why we read in the scripture about our early ancestors who lived such astronomically long lifespans. Let me read some of them for you. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Genesis 5, verse 5. Altogether, Seth, that would be the third son of Adam and Eve. Altogether, Seth lived 912 years and then he died. Genesis 5, verse 8. Again, altogether, Noah lived 950 years and then he died. Genesis 9, 29. Again, altogether, Methuselah lived 969 years, and then he died. Genesis 5, verse 27. Now these extraordinary lifespans, which almost reached a millennium of time, think about that, they came from God, who in so doing, warded off the full consequence of the curse of death, and allowed time for the human race to procreate and to expand. But eventually, death catches up with us. Just this week, Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, died at the age of 82. On the other side of the spectrum, Phyllis Diller, the comedian, died at age 95 of what they said was old age. And for our generation, um, 95, that's... That's true, right? I mean, that's old age. I remember uh, talking to my great-grandfather who died in his 90s, and I rejoiced and enjoyed his stories of the past of all the changes that he had witnessed in his life. Uh, Granddad talked about the fact that uh, he was around when they invented the radio. Uh, when they invented the automobile, when they invented electricity, and so on and so on. 
And I was thinking of that this week, and I thought, what changes might Adam or Noah or Methuselah have seen after living for more than nine centuries? The entire Roman Empire only lasted 1,011 years. So they almost lasted a full millennium. Almost as long as the entire Roman Empire. Well, one very disturbing change was the onset of such wickedness in human hearts that God determined to wipe out the entire human race in the great flood and then to begin anew with Noah and his family. But you know, after the flood, after the flood, the human lifespan dropped more than half in the years, and it kept dropping until we read the words of Moses in Psalm 90. The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass, and we all fly away. Psalm 90, verse 10, a psalm written by Moses. And yet we read about Moses. Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, and his strength was not gone. Deuteronomy 34, verse 7. That was a special dispensation for Moses. You could be sure of that. Not many people, after the flood, after the pronouncement of the 70 or maybe 80, not many people lived to be 120 years old. In fact, I don't know of anybody in recent history. That being said, yet Moses rightly concluded, and this is also in Psalm 90, All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90, verse 9 and following. And then he expands the thought, verses 15 and following. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children, May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Now in all of this, Moses is exhorting us to th thank God for life itself. Just be thankful. Uh, thank God for life, yes. Thank God for the work we have been able to accomplish, yes. And even if there have been days of affliction and years of trouble, and we finish our years with a moan. Be thankful. And he says in verse 14, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. All our days. Life is precious, folks. That's why uh, we are pro-life when it comes to the abortion issue. We believe life comes from God. The only one that has a right to take life is the giver of life, who's God himself. And so we ought not to be cutting babies out of the womb and destroying that which God has given. You know, when Al was able to be with us on Wednesday evenings and pray with the men, 
he would pray something like this. And I might not have the words quite right, but it went something like this. Lord, I praise you for good health. But even if you give me poor health, I'll praise you for that too. That's the way he would pray. And you know what? This echoes Moses' thoughts in Psalm 90. Sickness of body, sickness of mind, doesn't matter. It's part of our cursed world. We live in that. We praise God for the days that he gives us. Because guess what? And we learned last week, he is in it all. He's in the good days and he's in the calamitous days that come our way. Now, secondly, and this is extremely important, God intervenes in our sicknesses to bring healing and restoration. If we're to glorify God for all our days, and we just read it, that will mean the sick days too. But that being said, we are not to forget those times of refreshment spoken of by David. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He's talking to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all of your sins and heals all your diseases who redeemed your life from the pit and crowned you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Psalm 103, the first five verses. There isn't a person here this morning who has not experienced some form of severe illness over which God in His mercy has intervened to bring about healing. Every one of us have gone through that. Now we might think it's strange that God cursed humanity with pain and illness because of sin and then He steps in to alleviate the pain and heal the diseases that plague us. Doesn't that seem strange to you? I mean, it's like, a, did He change His mind? Well, I'll curse the earth and part of the curse is going to be sickness and illness and so forth. But then I'm going to step in and heal people. Well, it's not strange when we understand this to be part of salvation. Part of the work of Christ in redemption. Not just re redeeming our souls, but redeeming our bodies. And Paul talks about our bodies are waiting for the final redemption. In Romans chapter 8, he talks about that. When Christ will return, resurrection will take place, and so on. But in the meantime, God is working through His salvation, forgiveness of sins, and healing of the body. Sickness is associated with sin. Now, it might be your personal sin, or it might be sin in general. There would be, let's think about this, there would be no illness if, we're, if it were not for sin. None. This is why so many scriptures make the connection between sin and sickness. I'm going to read some for you. Listen to David's agony when he sinned with Bathsheba. Now he did do that, right? He sinned with Bathsheba. But there were, there were some consequences. Here's what he says. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, that is, he wouldn't confess his sin. He wouldn't admit it. 
So that's what he's talking about. When I kept silent, what happened? My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So what's he saying? As long as I kept quiet, God says, all right. Put his heavy hand upon him. He got sick. His strength is sapped. And then he tells what happened. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, verses 2 through 5. So you see, his misery was not just mental, it was physical. And he recognized it to be connected with his sin with Bathsheba. He writes again in Psalm 38. Here's what it says. A Psalm of David, a petition. A petition. And then he states it. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down upon me. So now he's in trouble again, right? Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of, here it is, my sin. So he's connecting the two again. He goes on. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester. They are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down. I am brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There's no health in my body. I am feeble, utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. Oh, my lang longings lie open before you, O oh Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay away from me. I'm like a deaf man who cannot hear, like a mute who cannot open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear, whose mouth can offer no reply. I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord, my God. Psalm 38, the first 15 verses. Now, he is very, very ill when he writes this psalm. He is so sick that none of his faculties seem to be working right. His heart, his ears, his eyes, his speech. And he says, it's because of my sinful folly. And his friends don't want to be around him. Because, boy, he looks bad. You know, it looks like he's going to make it. In Psalm 41, which was our meditation reading this morning, David talks about his enemies gloating, <laughs> gloating over his illness, saying, 
Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sick bed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. There's the connection again. Psalm 41, verse 1 through 4. Now all of this, brethren, from Israel's most godly king, yet he willingly and without equivocation links his times of illness with sin in his life, sinful folly. When we come to the new covenant, we again see the connection that God makes between sickness and sin. This became an issue one day when a group of men brought their sick friend to be healed by Christ. But the crowd surrounding the house where Jesus was was so dense that they couldn't get into the house. And so what did they do? They, not to be undone, proceeded to the flat roof above, removed the tiles, and lowered their friend on a litter in front of Jesus' feet. And we read, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? He's paralyzed. He's got a physical anomaly. Your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat, and walk? But, but, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, whoa, we have never seen anything like this. Mark 2, verses 5 through 12. Now the lesson here from Jesus to the Pharisees and teachers was that there was a connection between this man's paralysis and sin. In this case, so if I say your sins are forgiven, it's the same as saying you're healed. Get up, get your mat, you can leave. Your paralysis is gone. Again, John 5, paralytic lying at the pool of Bethsaida, suffered in that condition for 38 years of his life, the scripture says, till Jesus passed by and commanded him, pick up your mat and walk. Then Jesus slipped into the crowd. The Pharisees condemned the healing because it had occurred on the Sabbath day. Then we read, later Jesus found him, the sick man that was healed. He found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. John 5. Verse 14, again, the connection made between the fact of his paralysis 
and some sin in his life. When the Corinthian church profaned the Lord's temple, or not the Lord's temple, excuse me, the Lord's table, the Lord's table, through their gluttony and drunkenness, Paul wrote to, wrote to them, and this is what he wrote. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. A number of you have died. That's why. Connect the dots. Cause and effect. Sin and sickness, sin and death are going together in your church community because of your profanity, your profane way that you deal at the Lord's table. James wrote this. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Now notice the phrase. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. If the issue is that the sickness is related to sin, he'll be forgiven for your prayer for him. That God will make him well. Because that's the main issue. James 5 verse 15. So sickness is linked with sin, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And brethren, there is way too much evidence here to be coincidence. God is laying out for us that sickness is related to sin, even in godly men like David. And this is therefore the first inquiry we should make when we are seriously ill. Lord, forgive me. Lord, heal me is essentially the same kind of prayer. They go together. They go together even when you cannot put your finger on a specific sin. We live in a body that is fraught with sinful thoughts and we live in a world that is filled with sinful deeds. A cursed world and we ought not to be timid in making this connection. Could pray either way. Lord, heal me or Lord, forgive me. And it's obviously good praying. Now, I would just issue this caution. And the caution is this. Make the connection for yourself. You got it? Make the connection, sin and sickness, for yourself. Do not prejudge others in the body of Christ. Job's friends did this with him when Job's sins had nothing to do with the trials that he endured from Satan. He lived a perfect and righteous life, the scripture says. God said there wasn't even a man on earth like Job. And all his friends, all they could do is hang sin on him and blame some sin in his life for the sickness that he was enduring. Again, in John 9, we read, that Jesus and his disciples came upon a man born blind, born blind, and his disciples asked, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You know what? I say good for them. They at least considered the possibility that the man's blindness was somehow connected to sin. But their error was that that was the only scenario that they considered. 
And so Jesus had to correct him. Here's what he said. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened to him so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And this is the incident, you all know about it, where he made uh, clay out of spittle and put that, that on the eyes of this man, told him to go wash, and he did, and he came back seeing. So the uh, admonition is this. Don't jump to conclusions about the sickness of others and some sin. Paul was never healed of his thorn in the flesh, to name another. And there are believers whose whole life is a life of illness, and it's a testimony to the sustaining grace of God. But do consider the possibility of the connection between your own illness and sin. You can never go wrong to pray David's prayer, O Lord, have mercy on me, Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Psalm 41, verse 4. That's good praying. Good, good common sense. Now secondly, as we consider this subject, we consider God's grace magnified in whatever comes our way. The death of Christ is the basis for sins forgiven in a new nature. All that ails men and society is related to sin and God's curse upon the creation because of our rebellion to His law. Paul writes about this in Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation, he writes, for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Inward groaning is what? That's mental anguish. As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 19 through 23. So creation's waiting for us to be redeemed. We're waiting for us to be redeemed. For our bodies to get rid of this illness, the groanings, all of those things. The entrance of sin into our world was not a little insignificant matter. It was and it is a stupendous and horrific matter. It has ruined the environment. It has ruined the human race. Creation groans. The human race groans under the weight of God's curse. Sin did this. Not a mistake, not being human, not an error in judgment, but bold-faced, deliberate defiance to God's specific and reasonable one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think about that. Man could not keep one rule, let alone ten commandments. But he did not slip and fall. It was deliberate defiance. Adam and Eve opted to believe Satan, the liar, over the word of their Creator and Lord. That was a free will choice, and they chose wrongly. The sinless became sinners. And we have no such choice. 
We are born sinners, having inherited Adam's fallen nature, not his sinless nature. The race descends from fallen Adam, not sinless Adam. Paul writes it this way, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sin. Romans 5, verse 12. That's how death got here. That's how sin proliferated throughout the world. Now, no one can live beyond or independent of what they are by nature. Since our nature is fallen, our thoughts, our behavior are also fallen. This is why we cannot save ourselves through some kind of human endeavor. Paul writes it this way, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. Well, of course, think about this. We think and act based on the bent of our particular nature. So if it's a sinful nature, we think sinfully, we act sinfully. He goes on. The mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Nor can it do so. Romans 8, verse 5 and following. Oh, if it can't do so, then somehow... Somehow then we have to get a new nature and a new way of thinking. How's that possible? Well, first and foremost, we have to be forgiven of our sin. How can sin be forgiven? The answer that would, most people would give is, well, turn from evil and do good. Really? You thought about that? How does a sinner by nature turn from evil? Isn't evil part of who he is? How does a sinner by nature change his thinking and his behavior so that it can be labeled as good? God's indictment on all humanity is this. Here it is, scripture. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And you think you're the exception this morning. God is talking to you and he's saying, no, you're not. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have turned together and become Worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. My grandma used to say to me, it was always a mystery when she'd say this. Well, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. How many grandmas said that to you guys? Is that, am I the only one where they said that? What did she mean by that? You can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. She was saying you can only produce something compatible with the raw materials that you're working with. If you are working with silk fibers, then you can make a silk purse. 
But nothing silky smooth and beautiful will originate from a pig's ear. Do you ever feel a pig's ear? Do you ever feel the back of a pig? It's coarse hair. It's worse than horse hair. Boar's hair is stiff. They, you've had, they used to make uh, bristles on brushes from boar's hair. And so that's what she was saying. You can only work, only produce with what you got to work with. Well, now, bring that over into the spiritual realm. If your nature is sinful, if that's what it is, if that's what God has to work with, if that's what you have to work with, you're going to become a saint? God does not make saints out of sinners in this sense. John writes, Nothing impure will ever enter it, speaking of heaven, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will enter it. Oh, oh. Whoa, 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 whoa. Nothing impure. Mm, then we're all doomed. In our natural sinful state, yeah, that, that's true. But the glory of the cross of Christ is this. Those who, and I'm reading scripture, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. Galatians 5 verse 24. And if the sinful nature has been crucified, how then do I live? Paul answers, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Now this is not a saint made from a sinner. <coughs> but as Paul states, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There it is. The old has gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5 or 17. The cross of Jesus Christ has made that possible. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, writes Peter, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. It's predicted by Isaiah. He poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verse 12. The sin of many, not all, but many, and it is grace that writes your name in the Lamb's book of life, not your supposed good works. God, through the cross works, makes new creatures, brand new. It's not reformation of sinners into saints. It's the crucifixion of sinners and the establishment of something brand new in the Holy Spirit. That's the second point then, and this applies because we're talking about the connection between sin and poor health. Second point is this. 
The death of Christ is the basis of healing for body and soul. We saw this in David's repeated connection of sin to sickness, sickness being the symptom of sin. Isaiah says of the coming servant of Jehovah, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Well, I looked it up. The word for infirmities is the Hebrew word translated everywhere else diseases. The word for sorrows is the Hebrew word for grief. The things that cause us mental pain. And so when he went to the cross, not only did he deal with our sins, but the outcomes of our sins, the whole idea of our infirmities and our sorrows. In charismatic circles, they teach that anyone and everyone is entitled to the healing of God. All they have to do is believe and you will be healed. Not so. Many people who believe are not healed because God has another agenda for them. What is more, even charismatics get sick. Even charismatics die. Death comes to us all. God's healing, like God's saving, is grace. Grace. It's up to him. Isaiah's text is limited, both as to the atonement for sin, and who it is that is designated our, in verse 4, when he says our infirmities, our sorrows. Note verse 5, Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 verse 5. That's the very text that Peter quotes in 1 Peter 2.24 that I just read. And then in Isaiah 53 verse 8 it says, For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. Verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Many, but not all. And verse 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. Salvation is broader than we thought. Now, none of this precludes the use of medicine. None of this precludes the use of surgeries if you need surgery and the like to address various ailments. But it does indicate that Jesus died not only to atone for sin, but to remedy the consequences of sin, of which disease and physical impairment are part. If he so chooses, you may not demand of God anything beyond his grace. That's why we pray for the sick, isn't it? Why would we do that? Why, we, why do we pray for the sick? Why don't we just say, well, you know, you really... And sometimes we do this. You need to go see your doctor. Sometimes we say that. But I think as Christians, we pretty well have the connection. Somebody's sick, we're going to pray for them. Why do we do that? 
because God is the Savior of the body as well as of the soul. This is why our faith should not simply be in medicine or in medical procedures, but in God. We read, Praise the Lord, O my soul, says David, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, wonderful, and what? Heals all your diseases. That's part of the benefit of having God as Savior. Psalm 103, verse 2 and 3. How many times have you heard of a surgical procedure that was expertly performed, but the patient still died? Why did they die? Didn't they cut out the cancer? Did they cut out the tumor? Didn't they cut out the malignant growth? It's because it's the Lord that heals the body or not, as the case may be. It happens all the time. Healing of the body is God's work. And it's a promised blessing of the redeemed. Now maybe, just maybe, let me just preach a little personal here. Maybe we not, ought not always be so heavily dependent on chemical medicines. Take to heart God's gifts in creation. Ezekiel 47 verse 12 talks about the leaves of the trees being, and I'm reading scripture, for healing. For healing. Do you really think that God wants your health, and He planned that your health would be utterly dependent upon chemicals mixed in a laboratory that you will then ingest. I work with a lot of seniors, bless their hearts. One of the things that we find with seniors is that they go to multiple doctors they didn't get an answer here, so they go to this guy over here and so forth. And before long, they're taking 15 to 20 different medicines a day. And they wonder why they're having physical problems and neurological problems. And those are all chemicals that they're taking. We need to think about some of these things. God is the one who forgives our sins and heals our body. Now, I'm not anti-medicine. If you need an antibiotic, get it. If you need a surgery, get it. I'm just saying we need to think things through in terms of some of, of our modern day pushes from certain industries. Better yet is this combination of Jesus' ministry. We have it in our text. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Now notice, preaching the good news of the kingdom that's remedies for sin and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Remedy for body. Now he goes on. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Matthew 4, 23 and 24. Are you sick of sin this morning? Are you sick in body? Jesus' grace is the answer to both. To both. Let us remember that. And whatever our sin now and whatever our sickness now, it's all destined to end. There is a day coming when we'll no longer sin 
and no longer be sick. We'll be in a new heaven and a new earth and we'll have a new body to enjoy it all. Will you be part of that heavenly host? You can be through faith in Christ and repentance of your sins. Lord, bless and honor your word this morning. Teach us that there is a cure for the hurt of illness. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonder of wonders is his cross work. Not only does he deliver us from the consequences of, or from our sin, but the consequences from our sin, of our sin as well. He forgives us, but he also heals us. And as I said earlier, everybody here this morning probably has their story of how you intervened and brought about tremendous healing. We know it was you. No doubt about it. Because the medicines we took didn't help us. But the prayers of God's people did. Lord, teach us to rely upon you more in these whole areas. Teach us to value our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, which Paul says it is. So what we do with the body, what we do to it, what we put in it, is all very, very important. Honor and glorify yourself. The creator of the earth, the creator of our bodies, creator of our souls, has devised the remedy for both. Thank you, dear Christ, for your cross and the work of the cross. Thank you for dying for the sins of your people. Thank you for healing our sick bodies when we pray. You get the glory. Help us to love those that are sick and those that are hurting by, by their sin. And Lord, may we point them to the only answer, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, in whose name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.